What's up, everyone? This is Yanksko talking episode eight. We've made it eight episodes. Pretty crazy. I'm here with our astrophysicist and soccer nerd, Tom. Tom, how are you? Doing pretty good, Jake. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing well, doing well. Guys, before we get started with this episode, if you're listening on Spotify or Apple Music, like it, subscribe to it, follow it, do whatever you can. We're just two people that love soccer just as much as you. So anything to help us grow would be much appreciated. If you're watching on YouTube, I see you. I'm looking directly at you. Like the video, subscribe for more U.S. national team content. And again, it would go a long way in helping us grow this channel and grow the podcast. So with that, we're going to talk about the Jamaica game today. The U.S. winning one nothing on a Matthew Hoppy header in the second half. We will talk about our stars and strikes who impressed us, who didn't, and really go into some of the honorable mentions. Maybe a coach gets mentioned here and there about his starting lineup and substitutions that actually went right for a change. So to just kick us off here, the U.S. has won only one time the Gold Cup in the last three attempts. So in 2015, you'll remember they lost the semifinal match against Jamaica to get fourth place. In 2017, they won the tournament, became champions. In 2019, they were the runners-up. So in 2021, with a Week B team, we've made it to the semis again, looking actually better in these knockout rounds than we had in the gold cu- or in the group stages. Tom, what are your initial thoughts just going into the semifinals? And before we get into stars and strikes, just thoughts on the Jamaica game? Yeah, I, honestly, it doesn't surprise me that we've only won one of the last four gold cups, given who we've brought to our last four gold cups. We ran a pretty experimental post-World Cup roster in 2015. We ran another pretty experimental roster in 2017, and we're running one again. So that's sort of the way it goes. But this team showed fight. They showed determination, and they got the job done against Jamaica. And that's props to them for doing a really good job to make it to the semifinals because at the beginning of the tournament, I think that was the best expectation we could have for this group, and they they got there. Yeah. And I mean, credit to them with all the skill that they're maybe lacking in comparison to our best players. It really seems like this team has some grit to it, some determination and some team chemistry, which we might talk about a bit later on. But you're right. If our goal was to find players for the World Cup qualifiers and going into those games, it was really a second priority to win some games here. So the fact that we're in the semifinals We have more competitive games to build that practice and find more players for the World Cup qualifying is a good thing all around, I think, for me. Oh, yeah, I agree completely. The fact that we are still winning with this group of players shows how deep the U.S. pool is right now. The fact that we can pull out our Gianluca Busios and our Daryl DKs and still get results is great. And it's just something to build on as we go into a very grueling World Cup qualifier schedule. I'm glad you mentioned Gianluca Busio and Daryl DK because they seem to be on the opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of the performances that that they put in against Jamaica. So let's move to our stars first. So we're give me your three stars, Tom. Who impressed yeah, so you? Yeah, so I got three star players here. My first star is going to go Kellen Acosta playing in the Tyler Adams six role as we moved out of our five three two into our four three three again. 
Acosta, probably not his best game passing. He wasn't hitting a lot of those long diagonal passes that we know he's capable of, but he was just a wrecking ball in the midfield. He just destroyed the midfield all game long, held it down, was always where he needed to be for a tackle, and that's just a really valuable thing in a game that ends one nothing. So props to him. I think he's probably our, our second six right now. I think it's safe to say he's Adam's backup, right? I think so. Fox did have something to say on that. And there were two issues that I had with the Fox broadcast. This is the first one. They said during the game that Kellen Acosta might beat out Tyler Adams to be the first choice. I think that's ridiculous. Um, so first we had the Alexi Lawless center back depth chart. Now we have Kellen Acosta being the starting six in front of Tyler Adams, which is shambolic from the the broadcasting crew but i do agree with you kellen acosta probably had his best game in a u.s jersey since our last game against jamaica actually i guess he just loves to play against this team but he he was a destroyer in the middle of the field his work rate was excellent not his best passing game like you said but he really took the pressure off Gianluca busio to improve his work rate even though he had a stellar second half and really tracked back a lot um, but Sebastian Legette didn't really give us much going forward in the attack. So the fact that we did have this anchor here to really stamp out all of the counterattacks for Jamaica, and if they got past him, they had maybe your second star to get past, which is Miles Robinson, right? Yes, Miles Robinson is where we're going to go next with this. Because, yes, as good as Acosta was, if anything did get past him, Robinson ate it up. Just absolutely completely shut Jamaica down in 1v1 opportunities. And that's just a perfect thing to have in a center back. We know John Brooks is capable of those great line splitting passes. We know we have some other, maybe some more athletic center backs in the pool, but Miles Robinson might be the best 1v1 defender we have in our center back pool right now. And it showed in this last game, basically anytime Jamaica got out on the break, basically anytime they got to the back line, Miles stood them up in a 1v1 pool and sent them away. And it was it's fun to watch him play when he's on his game like that. I think he's really stepped in stepped into the game the last few games and really showed out and given us a good performance. I thought it was really important for him to have that type of game so that we could send our wing backs forward so that Jack mm-hmm. Moore and Sam Vines could join the attack because without his one on one defending and stopping those counterattacks, it could have been a bit more dangerous and a bit closer of a game. I know the scoreline was one nothing and we We did need to get a goal in the second half, but it never really felt truly in danger. It felt like the U.S. was the better team for most of the game. And the Mm -hmm. fact that Miles Robinson had the performance that he did really just kind of closed all of that out. But are you surprised as an Atlanta fan? Like, is that a performance that you expect to see at an international level? Yeah, I do. At this point, Miles Robinson is a best top five MLS center back. And he puts in these performances weekly in MLS and it's it just shows how good he's become i i was shocked when he became a starter for atlanta frankly i never really thought he was going to be when he was at atlanta united too and then he sort of jumps on the scene and looks fantastic every time he comes out and he does this every game i see watch with atlanta too where someone will make a mistake in the midfield the play will get on top of him and he'll make a heroic tackle or clear the ball to prevent atlanta from conceding because they don't have a great goalie and Frankly, their midfield has struggled a lot too. So Miles Robinson is the reason they keep so many clean sheets. I thought he also did a really nice job sweeping up for any James Sands mistakes. 
Mm-hmm. Fans didn't make a ton of mistakes, but he's not a super physical center back. He's only 6'1". He did lose mm-hmm. some headers to Corey Burke that gave Jamaica some dangerous plays, but the fact that Miles Robinson was always there to sweep it up really helped our total center back package look really good and solid. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, and James Sands definitely wasn't the most comfortable I've ever seen him playing in the back four instead of the back five. So having Miles Robinson, who's just a really solid defender next to him, was a good thing to have and I think was a good tactical decision by Burhalter, and it's good that he played well. Yeah, so who's the third star? Maybe man of the match? Man of the match has to go to Matthew Hoppy because he had a great game. Just from the start, taking guys on, being the most dangerous attacking option, trying shit, hitting a good cross, and then finishing it off with a game-winning header. I I just love to watch him play. He almost gives me like Clint Dempsey vibes with his attitude and with what he tries on the field. Like he's willing to take three, four guys on and just see what happens and hits a great volley a couple times, almost beats Andre Blake on. So I don't know. He was he's easily the most fun attacking option in this group of attacking players, and there's not a whole lot of fun to be had in this group of attacking players. So it's nice to see him show out, and I'd like to see him get a move from Schalke as a result of watching these games. Probably the reason why he shines so much on this team, at least, is because all of the players, in my mind, are very solid floor players. So they perform, on average, pretty good. They're good in MLS. They're above average for MLS players. But no one really has a dynamic piece to their game. Wait, I mentioned Legette as an attacking midfielder. Like he can't even really pass or break any lines in the in the final third. Paul mm-hmm. Ariola, I think you'll disagree with me on this. Actually, I was looking at some of our notes pregame. I didn't think he had a great game. He had great effort, and I mm-hmm. thought it was a good captain's performance. But I didn't think he played particularly well. Matthew Hoppy is the only person on the field that actually has that dynamic piece where. Yeah, maybe three or four out of five don't really come off, but the fifth time is going to be a goal or the fifth time is going to be a really dangerous play. And Mm -hmm. for me, that's something you just need on the field when you're trying to break down a team. So I I think he's continuing to prove that he's a cut above the rest. And honestly, for me, we'll probably talk about Daryl DK in the strike column, but that's a performance for Matthew Hoppe that I expect to see from someone that is in Europe, is constantly performing, and is a cut above the rest of the team. Yeah, and I think it's really important, too, in a team where we don't have a lot of technical ability, I think that's pretty fair to say from this squad, to have a player who can beat one or two guys and relieve some pressure and get the ball on the other side of the field, hold it up, maybe find someone, maybe get a foul. Like That's a really important quality in an attacker that sort of helps get the U.S. out of trouble when we can't play through the midfield. And Hoppy's about the only player in the squad who's willing to do that and willing to try and beat people. And, yeah, it, it showed because we've struggled in the last two games at times to really play through our midfield, play through our wingbacks. So letting Hoppy just get out on the break is great and something we need more of. You mentioned the Dempsey piece. I, I never thought that we would see another player like Clint Dempsey and Matthew Hoppy, given he still has a long way to go to even be considered in that category. But the swagger and the confidence that he has on the field just really, it it wasn't even 
the skill moves that he tried, or I remember he had a heel <laughs> flick with the back of his heel to try and pass mm. the ball, which didn't work. Um, but when he scored the goal and just went over, like, very, very heavy <laughs> swagger, like, Matthew Hoppy in that moment reminded me of Clint Dempsey, just someone who is, like, absolutely hungry, and they will not be fulfilled unless they score goals, unless they help the team win. And for mm-hmm. me, that hunger has been missing since Clint Dempsey. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard to replicate Clint Dempsey's attitude. And Hoppy just sort of has that air about him on the field. Sort of a uh, screw you. You're not going to tell me I'm not good enough. I'm going to go out here and just do whatever I want and score goals and help the team. And it's going to be great. I, I loved uh, he had an interview after the game with one of the analysts and they asked him what he was thinking when he scored the goal and with his celebration. And he was just like, I don't know. Like, I don't know what I was doing. I just, that's just what happened. Um, <laughs> and even in that way, it kind of reminded me of Clint Dempsey of just like, he's, he's almost like very quiet and he, he doesn't mm. want to be the all eyes on me person, but on the field he does. Yeah. So even in those ways, like I just, see some similarities but yeah we'll be lucky if we have any player whether it's matthew hoppy or in the future that comes close to being in the clint mc category mm-hmm. all right so who are your strikes tom who do you want to strike off the face of the planet from this game not sure i go that far but <laughs> daryl dk probably played himself out of at least the number one striker spot over these last two games especially this one in a game where the U.S. played pretty well, he was invisible and rarely positively impacted the match. So it's got to be better from him. He's not, I don't think with the performances he's showing, he's getting that $20 million transfer right now. Yeah, we were all kind of hoping and expecting that going into the Gold Cup, this was his opportunity to really raise that transfer price. And other than the game against Martinique, he hasn't really performed at a level that would warrant that type of money, given he did become a prof- professional soccer player one year ago from the time of the game. Mm. So he, he obviously has some development still to go. Yeah, he does. And I, I kind of worried about this when he caught fire for Barnsley that, you know, it's great to see a striker hit that amazing run of form, but can they continue it? Can they show it even when they're not scoring goals? And DK's technical ability his ability to play with his back to goal and combine with our wingers combine with our midfield is just it's not up to par right now he's just not finding space he's getting knocked off the ball too easily he's it yeah it's it's very frustrating watching him play because if he could combine with hoppy and if he could hold the ball up with his huge frame and just get a pass off to say a jet or an areola he could start counters he could create space there were a few times where he was running with the ball and I, he had a clear plat, pass to try and play in Hoppy who was running, you know, one V two and chose to hold it up instead and ended up fizzling out the attack. And you've got to see more from the striker than we saw from him, and especially in Burhalter's system, which relies on a striker who can drop in and combine with his wingers. And we're just not getting that from DK right now. I think Hoppy is actually the best drop-in center forward that we have, someone that can actually shield the ball and make a play to get it to an outlet. But mm-hmm. the fact is, one one thing that I do want to talk about probably right after this is how good of a job Greg did in this specific game. 
But the fact that he brought Paul Ariola and Jonathan Lewis, I don't want to belabor the point. We only have two true wingers on the the roster means mm-hmm. that Matthew Hoppy is going to continue to play on the wing because we just don't have enough creative wing players. And that's on Greg. But I think if we're looking for someone that can hold up the ball, make a move and get the ball out wide, that is actually Matthew Hoppy's forte, or at least what I've seen from him dropping into the midfield and making a move to get it. Yeah. And I think, did, how do you think Hoppy did with the press? What do you mean? Like, make us press? Or, well, pressing. Or him getting back. Just trying to think of like qualities that I think Josh Sargent's a decent passer. I don't think that he holds the ball up nearly as well as we would like, but the only other characteristic to really compare them on is the pressing ability. So, I get. Yeah. Josh Sargent for me is our best defensive forward by far. And mm-hmm. he has the best motor, the, the best engine, and mm-hmm. the best tactical mind of what angle to take and when to close down defenders to to win the ball back. So for me, if we're playing a team that is going to hold the ball, I think I would probably play Sargent as number one still. Um, Mm -hmm. But Matthew Hoppe, it's tough too, because one, his club team, Schalke, doesn't really play that way. They were very poor in, in the Bundesliga last year. They're in the second division now. And the second point is that he's in uh, preseason form, whereas most of the team is in the middle of their MLS season. Mm-hmm. So I, he, you could even see like after the 55th minute, he was definitely starting to struggle with his fitness a bit. And mm-hmm. that probably comes with, yes, where his fitness is, but also his age. Like usually people learn a bit more as they go on and get older to manage their fitness a bit. But I think for me, like he he does need to work on that part of his game. And if it's a team that we're going to need to press up the field, then at least be smarter with what space you're taking and what you're what space you're taking away from the players holding the ball. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I do think there's now a conversation to be had. I think it's safe to say that DK's fallen off the radar a little bit, at least for the first team. And Hoppy's kind of played himself into that conversation. Yeah. I I do still have Sargent as the number one until things change dramatically. But Hoppy for me, I mean, his stock has risen much more dramatically than Daryl DK's has this tournament. Yeah, I I agree. And guys, I do want to say, because I've seen on other videos or comments that, oh, you can't praise Acosta for having a great game when you talk shit about him against some other team. No, we can evaluate players on a game by game basis because that is how they're playing in the game. So, yes, Daryl DK did not have a great game. He did have some good games throughout the group stages, but overall, throughout four games so far, he hasn't impressed as much as Matthew Hoppy. We will talk after the tournament about players that stock rose the most, stock fell the most. But for now, game by game basis, yes, we can evaluate players on how they did in each game. And it's not hypocritical to say one game they did poorly, one game they did well. Yeah, this is sports. Sports is a very up and down thing. You never know what's going to happen and who's going to perform. In this last game, we saw Acosta and Hoppy perform. DK's now, I think, fair to say, had two pretty poor outings in a row. Yep. So honorable mention for my stars, I actually had Greg Bearhalter as one of my stars. 
the reason for that, I thought his starting lineup was excellent. The formation that we played was really well suited to our strengths and Jamaica's strengths as well. So the four at the back with losing Zimmerman, we really needed that to be able to play Sands and Miles Robinson and get our best 11 players on the field all playing together. Um, again, our formation and tactics really suffocated Jamaica other than the first minute of the game. We were by far and away the, the better team on the field. I think over 65% possession um, outshot Jamaica 11 to 10 and really just felt like we were in control for a lot of it. So again, this is one of those, I don't think I can be happy with Greg throughout the group stages. It never really felt like he outcoached the other coach, but in this specific instance against Jamaica, this is probably the first game other than Martinique in the last five or 10 games where I felt like Greg Berhalter really did do a good job and he did outcoach the Jamaican coach. What were your thoughts on that? I agree. He did a great job. I like the formation. I think the starting lineup, honestly, I don't think there's a single piece I would have changed to that starting 11. Like it, it was, it was a pretty perfect starting 11 for me. And they did a great job coming out of the gate and looking really good over the first 20 or 30 minutes or so. The best thing I think Burhalter did though, was he righted the ship after a shaky end of the first half. I think I, I started to notice after about 30 minutes that Jamaica started to get the better of the chances, have a little bit more of the ball, and it started to look a little bit like the Canada first half's ending. And I was a little bit worried that we were about to see a really negative second half, and we just didn't see that. They came out of the gates and were the better team for the entire second half. And that ability to make either the halftime, I'm not sure if it was a tactical adjustment or if it was just a motivational adjustment, but he learned his lesson from Canada and got them playing a little bit more forward than they were in the second half in that game. So props to him for that because that was needed in a tie game and a knockout stage to sort of go out and take the game to a worse opponent. Definitely. We didn't get bogged down and we didn't come out flat in the second half, which was really important to the development. I think for me also the subs were quite good and very impactful. Obviously rolled down, got the assist after subbing in for Paul Ariola. The one caveat to that, though, is that Matthew Hoppy was about to be subbed out if there was an opportunity before his goal, actually. So if the ball had gone out of bounds in the three to five minutes prior to the goal, Matthew Hoppy probably wouldn't have been in the game. And I don't know if Giacchini scores that goal or not. Um, but what do you think of the substitutions and just overall his other coaching performance? I thought that the substitutions were good. I'm... Glad I, you know, I think Shaq Moore's on minutes rotation and in a game where we're sort of trying to stay solid at the back, Reggie Cannon makes sense to bring on in the second half. I, I thought that Roldan was excellent and has looked way better in the wing uh, half space merchant type role than he has as a defensive midfielder in this tournament. So good to see him get some minutes there. And then Giassi Zardes was an excellent substitution. Like, I thought that he impacted the game a lot more than DK and was willing to fire some shots off and just be active up top. And it was a good performance from Zorez. So I was glad to see him get involved. In a weird way, this was the first time where I knew Giassi Zardes was coming on the field as substitute and I felt good about it. I, I don't I, know I, what that feeling was, but <laughs> it happened. <laughs> I'm a notable Zardes 
appreciator as a pair opposed to a lot of us fans i i he rarely puts in one of those performances where you're like wow what an amazing game but i rarely watch a game where zardas plays and think that he wasn't involved or didn't have at least a decent showing he's never going to be the best striker in the pool but he's not the worst striker in the pool and there are far worse options to bring on when you're chasing a goal in the gold cup quarterfinals than jossie zardas and we've seen it in several Gold Cup knockout stages before where coaches have brought on worse strikers than Giassi Zardes and failed to get the goal. So, I don't know. I Zardes has a knack for finding, for hitting good shots, finding good shots and spaces and making something happen. So, almost like a Chris Wondolowski in MLS-type striker. Yeah. And I think the conversation of Giassi versus Daryl in the semifinal game against Qatar is a great question for us. Before we get to that, I do just want to stop and talk about the Jamaica lineup and how they came out to the field real quick. Because to me, uh, they didn't have two of their best players on the field, especially Leon Bailey, who apparently was maybe injured, maybe not. But I feel like if he was, that information would have come out at least after the game to really help alleviate any of the pain from Jamaica and their coaching staff. But we haven't heard a peep about Leon Bailey and his injury, potentially. What did you think of the starting lineup from Jamaica and just how they came out to play? It was possibly the worst lineup they could have selected. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it was a 4-2-3-1, and basically everyone up top was a USL product who's not in my opinion, the best player at their position for Jamaica. There was no Gray. There was no Bailey. It was strange. It didn't feel like Jamaica really put their best foot forward in what should have been an important game for them. I think their coach was already under fire and under pressure to win that game against the U.S. They also rested six of their best players in the last game of their group stage game which we thought was to prepare them for the U.S. men's national team. But when you think about it, there was a week in between the last group stage game and the knockout rounds, so there really wasn't a good reason to rest players in the last group stage game if you were actually looking towards fitness because they did have ample time to rest. So for me, yeah, I completely agree. Someone like Andre Gray being on the bench when he has Premier League experience and is performing in the championship for Watford versus uh, Corey Burke or USL players that are on the Jamaican team just felt very weird to me. And the fact that the coach is under pressure, they were every professional, right, is trying to win. Even when you're benching players and you want to lose to get an easier opponent, nobody on that field is playing to lose. So for me, going into that knockout game and then putting out that lineup and playing the way that they did just felt very very weird and very negative from that perspective. Yeah, it really did. It felt very strange to sort of play that perspective. And the Jamaican Federation is kind of a disaster and has always been the thing that's kept them back. You've got to wonder if there's still some issues going on between the European players and the Federation that is playing a part in lineup selection at this point, because that's about the only explanation for why an Andre Gray or Leon Bailey is not even showing up on the field in a Gold Cup quarterfinal that was really yours for the taking. Like, one goal, I think is fair to say, really changes the way that game is played. And 
Jamaica probably had they had opportunities. They they could have very easily put one in at the end of the first half. So I don't know. Yeah, especially when you think about the CONCACAF landscape, the U.S. and Mexico are going to be the top two teams for a long time going forward. Canada, I think, is making a case just by their consistent performances throughout the summer that they deserve to be in maybe the top four, top five conversation for CONCACAF teams. We've seen this tournament, how far Costa Rica has fallen in quality and age. Jamaica has an opportunity to step into that third or fourth best CONCACAF team, and they continue to throw that opportunity away. Yeah, they really do. It's it's amazing. If they had a quality run federation, even a USSF level run federation, they would easily be the third or even second best team in CONCACAF. They've got solid options. If they could recruit their dual nationals and figure out a way to pay them, they would be really good, but the Federation can't get out of its own way and it costs them on the field and has for a decade now. Yeah. And any team would be happy and lucky to have someone like Andre Blake in goal. I think that save that first save against Matthew Hoppy on the left footed volley is just some insane reaction time that I will never compute in my human brain. But um yeah, so let's let's get back to the U.S. team because I think there are a lot of great questions to be answered going into the Qatar game. Zardes versus DK. Where do you stand going into the Qatar game? I want to see Zardes and going to duck for cover here from online <laughs> reactions to that, but I want to see Giassi Zardes. I think as bad as Zardes' first touch has been, he's a poacher by nature, and I think is going to be able to take advantage of Cotter's back line a little bit better than DK will. He's pretty good at finding space. He's pretty good at running onto balls. I just think that he's going to provide more going forward than Daryl DK against this Cotter team. So DK long-term is a better striker and is a better prospect than Giassi Zardes ever was. But right now, I think Giassi Zardes has outplayed Daryl DK over the last two games. Two things come to mind when I agree with you for Zardes starting the game against Qatar. The first is just based on form. Based on form, Daryl DK does not deserve to start this game. And that's not saying, again, that he's not a better striker or has a higher ceiling than Giazzi Zardes. But I do think just based on how this tournament has gone and who is really trustworthy in a game like this, I would probably go with Giazzi Zardes over Daryl DK. The second is we went into this tournament with the priority of trying to find players for World Cup qualifying. I feel like as we get closer to the final, that perspective starts to shift towards winning more than finding World Cup qualifying players because we've given lots of players lots of time and lots of experience throughout the tournament. So for me, for for a look ahead at Qatar, right? They play a 5-3-2 in defense, a 3-5-2 in attack. They really like to absorb pressure and hit really punchy on counterattacks. So for me, I think what the U.S. is going to do and how we win this game is we work the ball into the box. Really, like This plays perfectly into Greg's Columbus Crew style of play and how he would like every game to go for the U.S. national team is really work the ball into the box and hit it to the head or the foot of a poacher. And for me, Zardes is kind of called for in that type of game. So 
I think that the game calls for a player like Zardes. And for me, when I look at form Zardes versus DK, I do probably still go with Zardes if I'm in a must-win game. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I think that the point of the opponent and the point of form are both well said that, you know, on both counts, this is the game for Zardes to show what he can do and earn a spot on a World Cup qualifying roster. Ooh. <laughs> now now you really have him. to duck for cover. He's going <laughs> to play a game, maybe even two. I think he's even going to start one. <laughs> Look, guys. There's 23 players that are going to each World Cup qualifying game. There's 30 people that are going to be taken on the roster. The 23 mans don't need to be confirmed until 24 hours before the World Cup qualifying games. So you take 30 players for three games. You confirm your 23-player roster 24 hours before that specific game. So whether Zardes plays, starts, subs, or is just on the 30-man roster, he will be there. Whether you like it or not, he will be there. He will be um, there. Yeah. So, Think, oh, you can't have watched all of this U.S. soccer over the last summer and not thought Zardes was not at least top four for strikers. And we're going to well, see four strikers play in 14 games. That's going to be a personal attack to about 50% of the U.S. men's national team uh, fans. So we're we're sorry, not sorry, everybody. That's, <laughs> that's the way it is. <laughs> um, so it's the midfield. It it really seemed like something changed and just switched this game. We were completely overrun against Canada, even though their midfield isn't exactly strong. Uh, In our look ahead to the Jamaica game and our scouting report of them, we did talk about how that was their weakest area. But for me, right, Kellen Acosta had an incredible game. John Luca Busio, his second half especially, was immense for the U.S., and Legette, while he wasn't excellent, he was very Sebastian Legetti, shall we say. And he did enough to really solidify the foundation of our midfield. So what do you think changed from the Canada game to the Jamaica game? I don't, I can't quite pinpoint it, even from watching both back to back. Like, it's it's hard to really tell beyond maybe some comfort for those three playing with each other a little bit more. I think it honestly might be the formation and the wingers might have been the answer. I think Paul Ariola, even uh, you didn't don't agree with me that he had a good game, but I think his ability to drop in and combine with, say, Kellen Acosta and Shaq Moore and play the ball between the three of them gave us something we were missing when Walker Zimmerman went out. I think that Matthew Hoppy, we've already talked about how good he is at combining and at playing out of pressure. So having him to be able to come back and relieve some of the pressure on Legette and Busio to find an attacking option was very good. So I think the 4-3-3 sort of was better suited to that midfield instead of having those three be completely alone and trying to create and trying to play through a midfield pressing them, play through a Canada or Jamaica. Instead, now they have, you know, Hoppy and Ariola as outlets that they can sort of combine with. And that, I think, is the biggest tactical shift that allowed them to be successful. It definitely seemed like we also weren't afraid to pass it back and try and make space for just playing one-twos, like you said. In the Canada game, when we went up one nothing very early on, they were pressing heavily in our side of the field, and it seemed like the instruction from the defense, at least, was to get it up the field and try and have a forward hold it up, and we did that very poorly. 
against Jamaica, they did press us. Um, they did have three or four players to cover our defense, but the midfield worked really hard to make space and wasn't really afraid to just keep possession instead of continuing to try and make positive and more risky passes. So Legette versus Williamson, that's the last thing I want to talk about in the midfield. Does Eric Williamson exist in Greg Berhalter's mind? I'm not sure he does. And I don't quite know why. I, I thought he looked good in the limited appearances, appearances he had in this tournament. I, I guess Legette is a trusted player for Berhalter, but you would think he's not wearing the armband in this game that maybe it was the opportunity to try him out and see if he can't get the goal. I There must be something going on in training that we're not seeing because from performances on the field, I don't understand why Williamson hasn't seen playing time. I'm assuming it's this is not a uh, a thing that many fans will like to hear either. But Legette is a trusted veteran for Greg, and I do think he values those players on the field, especially in knockout games and games that matter a lot. But you're right. In the last twenty thirty minutes, why not have a fresh leg, Williamson? who's a bit more creative and does have a very good work rate to be able to get back and play in a bunker system as well. If we need him to just felt yeah. a little strange. And that's, that's the one knock against Greg for this game at least, but Hey, we won. It's another shutout. We've only given up one goal this entire tournament and it was on a penalty kick. So all in all, just some, some good forms and some good stats going into our semifinal game. With the defense, Tom, against Jamaica, we played four at the back and there were some dangerous counters when we had 2v2 situations and Miles Robinson and James Sands were the last back. I think that will be very difficult to stop against Qatar, who is a bit more lethal on the counterattack and have some very technical and fast players. Do you think we go with the four in the back? And if so, does anything change against Qatar? I don't know if we go with the four, the back or not. I think the question becomes how much do you trust a Kellen Acosta playing as, as the six versus how much do you trust Henry Kessler playing as the right center back in his first senior team cap in a knockout stage gold cup game. I think that we're going to see the four, three, three, just based on the fact that I'm not sure that Greg's going to trust Kessler for that role. I'm not sure that I personally trust Kessler for that role. We saw how that worked with Donovan Pines being thrown into the game against Canada. It was really shaky. And we know how good players like a FIFA are at taking advantage of shaky defenses. We've seen it all tournament long. So I assume we're going to go to the four at the back again, but we're going to really need our midfield to help, especially Kellen Acosta has got to be able to drop back and play really solid defense or Cotter's going to make us play, make us pay. I think you you hit the nail on the head with Kellen Acosta to go again back to Greg's days as the Columbus crew coach. Something he loved to do with Will Trapp is allow him to drop back between the center backs and essentially play a three in the back in offense. So you lose a midfielder, which would be Kellen Acosta in this scenario, and potentially his creativity and an extra body in the middle of the field. But you give yourself a bit more stability in the back against counterattacks even though you're playing a four in the back system in totality. So I do think that that might be what they're thinking, but we'll see on game day. I think there's a few different variations and 
ways that a coach can combat that type of counterattacking style. Yeah. Yeah, I think there are, but I, I would be shocked if we don't get the Burhalter ball 4-3-3. I, I really do think that the switch to three at the back is a necessity thing for him more than anything. We've seen it in times where we've absolutely had no other option. And yeah. I don't think that we're going to be in that situation against Cotter. Yeah, definitely. So we've we've talked about attack, midfield, defense. I do think there is a conversation to be had about the goalkeeper as well. I mentioned at the start that there were two things I did not like about the Fox broadcast. The second thing that they said at the end of the game was that Matt Turner was solidly the number two for the U.S. national team. They didn't even mention Ethan Horvath. So I I put this tweet out, right? There's like 300 (laughs) likes. It's more likes than any other by far. There's so many comments and a lot of arguments. I'm not saying that Matt Turner is not the second goalkeeper on the roster. I'm not saying that there's not an argument to be made, but to just say he is the second on the roster without even mentioning that Ethan Horvath is part of this team was part of the nation's league final winning game where he saved the penalty in extra time. It was just disrespectful, man. Just it was, that's, that's some respect on Ethan's name. That's some major disrespect right there. And I, I do think there's a conversation to be had, but I don't think it's a long one. I, I do think that the battle <laughs> between Stefan and Horvath right now, Matt Turner's distribution has not been good. He is a great shot stopper, but unless his distribution gets better, he's not in the conversation for me. He's a solid third option, but he's, he doesn't play with his feet. I appreciate that he tried this game against Jamaica. Mm-hmm. And like I said, for when we talked about the midfield, we did try and play out of the back and play out of the press a bit more. And that also happened because Matt Turner did play some shorter passes, but he is just not up to par. And Zach Steffen is an excellent shot stopper. He's great with his feet. He doesn't get much playing time. So that's the knock on him, right? Ethan Horvath doesn't get much playing time either. He's not a starter at his club, but you can see the talent that he has. He's Good with his feet. Excellent shot stopper. Matt Turner is probably the best shot stopper of them all, but doesn't play the way that we want to be playing with the A team. So, yeah, it's it's a conversation. It's not a long one, but put some respect on Ethan Horvath's name, please. Put some respect. At least acknowledge that the guy exists in the universe. <laughs> he saved a game-winning penalty in a final on your network less than two months ago. Like... <laughs> Was the Nations League on Fox? Yeah. Come on, guys. You, you got to <laughs> up the ante. Up the ante here. Um, okay, so the only other thought I had for this game, I know we've been talking it to death, is just something I mentioned earlier, which is that this team is really making up for their skill, their lack of skill with effort and camaraderie. Any thoughts there with just what you're seeing on the field and any of the players that really stick out? I mean, they they really just look like they're having fun, having a good time. I, I do think um, – I, I'm not sure if anyone sticks out as on the field, but, like, the, the, the U.S. men's national team videos have been great to show just how, how much fun this group is having at this Gold Cup. Yeah. If you haven't seen them yet, they're – I think they're called Do You Know Your Teammate on the U.S. men's national team YouTube channel. 
it's an awesome look. I think Gianluca Busio and Greg Bello or <laughs> George, George Bello, Bello have yeah yes have one together, and then uh, and Daryl DK. Yeah, DK and who was with him? Who I think it was Reggie Cannon. They they got into yeah, like yeah. anime. Yeah. I don't know, just <laughs> some hilarious things. But it definitely seems like this is a very close knit group. And again, one thing I I can credit Greg with consistently is just building a very good atmosphere and a positive culture around this team. We can't say the same about Jason Kreiss. <laughs> and if you lose us, Julian Araujo and David Ochoa, Jason. We will come and find you and we will say mean things to you. So, <laughs> or we'll just say them here. <laughs> yes, exactly. Same thing. Same thing. So, all right, let's, let's move to anything else that's happening in the stratosphere for the U S national team, our transfer tracker, any news from this week? Uh, it looked like Busio is not yet agreed to with Venezia, but he did get closer between the um, Canada and Jamaica game in terms of finalizing that agreement. And we've also heard some reports that Matthew Hoppy has received um, offers in the realm of $3 million, but Schalke is looking for anywhere between 8 to $12 million. So we'll see if any teams are ready to shell out that much cash. I think he's not hurting himself with some of these performances in the Gold Cup. Any transfers that stick out to you, Tom? Yeah, my big transfer news is Chris Mueller making the move to Hibernian in Scotland. That is the one that stuck out to me as the most bizarre transfer of the window. Yes, he is. I, it looked to me like he just wanted to leave MLS <laughs> with any, like he didn't care. He just wanted yeah. out. It, it's another example too of MLS learning the hard way that you sell your prospects before they want out. Because he's exiting to Hibernian Probably not the best movie could make. It's maybe even a step down in quality of opponent, except for four matches in the season when you're going to play Celtic and Rangers. And he's leaving on a free. Orlando didn't get a chance to resign him. They're not going to get any money for the sale. So one of those instances of learning your lesson about selling players for whatever value you can get for them before they move on their own. Not directing that at Orlando for any particular reason or anything, but it's a lesson that you should probably pick up on. I am going to pick on Orlando, though, because it puts them in a very interesting position with Daryl DK. It it just seems like because he hasn't moved yet, I'm going to assume they have had offers, but they want to hold on because they think he's worth more. This puts them in a position where I, I don't think Chris Mueller is the first one to do this to them <laughs> or, or in MLS in general. So the fact that they now have another young player that they probably value at a much higher uh, rate than what they're getting offers for. And at the same time, having just been hurt by Chris Mueller, I, I wonder what's going to go on with the Daryl DK transfer and if that will affect it in any way. It's really amusing when you think about it in terms of Daryl DK transfer saga because, yeah, having a player leave on a free like that while you're trying to sell another player who's more valuable and I want to say is pretty close to expiring his contract. Two years. So one and a half years, I think. Yeah. So 
they the the clock is ticking for them to actually get this sale done. And if the twenty million offers aren't rolling in, maybe start look at the ten million offers. Yeah. And guys, just so you know, for transfers, when a player is on a contract with this current team, that contract carries over when they transfer. So essentially, as your contract ticks down, if you have one year left, six months left, you become much less valuable as a transfer target because the the team that is buying that player isn't guaranteed to have them for a very long time. So as your contract ticks down, that money that Orlando is going to get for Daryl DK is just going to continue to decrease unless Daryl DK gives us hat tricks for the rest of his time at Orlando this season. Yeah, and he's looked good in MLS, but he's got to show up for the national team, I think, if that value is going to keep going up. If he's not playing for the U.S., he's much less valuable from a marketing standpoint. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. So, Tom, that is our show. It looks like we've talked about a lot of stuff, covered a ton of ground. Um, want to thank everyone listening. Any final words from your end? No, not really. Just excited to keep watching the rest of this Gold Cup and enjoying the U.S. Women's National Team in the Olympics here, although it is doing not good things to my sleep schedule. <laughs> yes, well, now everyone knows how I feel waking up at 3 a.m. in England to watch these Gold Cup games. but. That's our show, everyone. Thank you so much for watching, for listening. Again, if you haven't yet, follow us on whatever podcast app you're using. Like this video, subscribe to the channel for more U.S. national team content. And we will see you next week with another episode covering the semifinal against Qatar. We may have some special guests covering the women's national team in the Olympics. Thanks so much, everyone. Bye, guys.